James chapter 1 again, I'm going to read for us verses 12 through 18. James 1, follow along if you would. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a first kind of first fruits of all he created. <clears throat> Let me read verses 14 and 15 to you again. And listen as I read, because in here James gives us the life cycle. It might be more appropriate to call it the death cycle of sin. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after death his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. So desire conceives sin, it gives birth to sin, and then sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. Each sin that's born, so gossip, lust, greed, hate, prejudice, rage, pride, laziness, whatever, goes out into the world and causes trouble. We'd be amazed, I think, to learn how an act of lust, which we thought affected no one, could cause so much damage and how it damaged us. James is here telling a horror story some monstrous reprobate breeds a vast number of illegitimate children who, as they grow, wreak havoc in the world. Some of these monsters are worse than others, but every one of them causes harm. They hurt people, cause discord, divide churches, destroy families, devastate nations. These monsters grow up and do what their father did bring innumerable other monsters into the world that do the same kinds of things and wreak the same kind of havoc they did. It's a horror story. That doesn't mean it isn't a true story. It is the story of our world. Our mother Eve opened the door to this horror and Father Adam walked right through it. This is the story of sin. James says, verse 15, that desire conceives and gives birth to sin. So in the scriptures, the worst thing about sin is that it gives birth to more sin, multiplies faster than a warren full of rabbits. And before you know it, there is a horde of sin. If we could see what God sees, if we could follow the lineage of each individual sin back to the first in its line, we would see how it branched out into a family tree of sin that quickly grew into a forest. 
We could see how a sin in Philadelphia yesterday was already the fifth generation of a sin committed in L.A. last week. St. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. What a nightmare it would be to see the sins you have done and the sins that were birthed because of that sin waiting for you at judgment. Or following in a long line behind you. If we could see that, we wouldn't sleep at night. But sin not only follows us, it follows us with a hatchet. Sin commits patricide and matricide. It kills the people who bring it into existence. So James goes on to say that sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. See, it's a true story. It's a horror story. And it's our story. The story of the monsters we engender and the destruction they cause. But Jesus is the monster slayer. God, the Bible teaches, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. When we begin to see what that means, we will be awestruck. Jesus saves us, not metaphorically, but literally. He makes things right will make things new, and even now has made it possible for us to get out of this horror story and into a happily ever after story. And the happily ever after story, our good deeds give birth to good deeds. See, that's how it works. And they follow us to the judgment, not to testify against us, not to kill us, but to testify that we belong to Jesus. So St. Paul says in the same way, good deeds are obvious. And even those that aren't cannot be hidden. The humble, obedient Christian will one day be astounded as anyone, more astounded, to see the good that God has accomplished through him or her that will redound to his or her eternal joy and God's unending glory. That's the good news. Jesus entered the horror story and experienced the horror. Christ died, says both St. Peter and St. Paul, for our sins. Our sins and the sins of the world followed him with a hatchet, no, with a mallet and nails. But God raised him from the dead and will someday raise us as well and rescue all of creation. That was and still is the plan. You and I can't slay the monster. Only God can do that. We're not strong enough. That's the bad news. The good news is that he's done it and is doing it through Christ. You can't do it, but that doesn't mean you don't have something to do. You have a role to play, work to do, and it's hard work. And it's laid out for us here in James. See, James lays out for us two paths that we can follow. 
One leads to the crown of life, described in verse 12. The other leads to the death, described in verse 15. And we must choose which path to follow. Where the two paths diverge, there's always some kind of test. Okay, You're in some kind of test, that means you're at a place where the paths diverge. When you encounter that test, you go one way or the other. One way runs like this, test. They both start with the test. Endurance in trusting God. Being approved, receiving the crown of life. The other runs like this, test. Desire to indulge self, sin, death. The thing is, standing in the place of the test where the roads diverge, all you can see looking down one road is endurance. You usually can't see what lies beyond that, the approval and the crown of life. And looking down the other, all you can see is indulgence. You can't see what lies beyond that, the sin and the death. Not too long ago, Karen and I were in the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. We left the car in a parking area off Skyline Drive, struck a trail, and we headed west for maybe half a mile, then turned north. And we walked along the path for quite a ways until it teed, and we had a choice to make. So we turned right, and we headed back east. A few hundred yards further on, the path forked. And we stopped and looked down each path, trying to decide which one to take. Maybe we could see 100 yards, probably more like 50 yards down the path. We chose the one that ran to the north because the first stage of that path looked more scenic, maybe a little easier than the first stage of the other path. If you come to a fork, now a test, in your marriage, at work, at church, in friendships, in leisure, you come to a test, don't base your choice on what the first stage of the path looks like. Because you'll never be able to see any further than endurance or indulgence. And indulgence always looks easier. And the temptation of this age is ease. Karen and I hike have hiked over the years in quite a few places. And when you're in some place you don't know, a trail map is invaluable. And these verses that we read a few moments ago, James gives us a trail map of sorts, which shows where both trails lead. If one of them leads to a place you don't want to go, you better take the other one. Remember, the trail begins with a test. That's sort of the trailhead. And from there, we must turn one way or the other. One runs, as we saw two weeks ago, along the way of endurance. Now remember, it is always endurance and trusting God. It's not just endurance uh, for going through a difficult time, but endurance and trusting God. That way rises up to what you could call approval point, what James calls standing the test. It has the idea of being approved for use, for service, for good. And then it opens up to the glorious sight of the crown of life. Now, this is the way of encountering trials, including temptations, with God. You can encounter your trials with him or without him. This is the way of doing it with him. The other way is the one that James outlines in verses 14 through 15. 
Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after death, desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Standing at the trailhead, the trial, the test, you can choose the way of indulgence. Verse 14 says that a person is tried or tempted by his, literally, his own strong desire. That desire is often to feel important or wanted or to avoid the opposite of feeling unimportant and unwanted. Those are incredibly strong desires. And we have to learn to trust God with them, with our desires. If we don't, we will go down the wrong path. We get so focused on things along the path, the things that just hit you right in the face, you know, the lust, the addiction, the anger, the bigotry, the lying, the things that humans do either to feel important and wanted or to avoid feeling unimportant and unwanted. We get so focused on those things that we miss something even more crucial, whether we're on the right path to begin with or not. If you're caught in some sin, so whatever it might be, lust, anger, lying, hatred, bitterness, drunkenness, whatever, you need to hear this. That sin is not the primary nor the worst thing going on in your life, and you need to stop fixating on it. It's like thinking the most important thing about the trail you're hiking is the snake and the grass. But look, you can kill the snake, and even if you kill all the snakes and are still on the wrong path, you're not going to end up where you want to go. In life, the important thing is whether or not you're going to or from God. God is most important. At the heart of every temptation, whether to eat the forbidden fruit in the garden or to give in to lust or addiction or anger in our homes, lies a binary choice. God, not God. James says a person is tempted when by and that could be translated, I think it should be, upon the basis of his own evil desire, he's dragged or drawn away and enticed. The language that he's using comes from fishing or trapping. The desire, and the NIV translates evil desire, but I don't think that, that they should. Strong desire would be better. The word evil isn't in the text at all. And I say that because the same word is used often of good desires, even of Jesus' desires. So the desire, the strong desire is present. Often to be important and wanted, to avoid feeling unimportant and unwanted, and then some possibility of treating that desire presents itself. Now, if you're a fisherman like me, and by the way, all fishermen are tempters. Do you realize that? That's their only job, is to tempt. To tempt and catch. I think of passing a lure along the edge of a weed bed. And the goal is to get some big pike or muskie out of the weeds where it's hiding. If it sees the lure goes by and is interested, if it thinks, here may be a way of satisfying the hunger, I've got it. That's what that, means, that word means. It's, tried to, it's translated in the NIV as dragging 
away or drawing away, pulling it out. Now, if I'm doing that and I'm pulling a crankbait, I might pause at that point for half a second because I know that that can entice a fish to strike. Something similar happens with us. Something grabs our attention. It promises to quench our pain or fill our emptiness or satisfy a strong desire. We're usually not even aware of why we do the things we do. Any more than that fish is aware of why it follows the bait. But always, and this is the thing we must learn, there is a moment of decision. Now, for some people, the moment of decision happened before the temptation even arrived. They'd already decided, when the opportunity comes, I'm going to get out of this pain, or whatever it might be. For most people, the moment of decision happens before they're aware of it, hardly aware of it. But we must be aware of it. That's the moment when desire conceives. On the surface, the decision seems to be about whether or not to engage in some behavior. A sin, gossip, for example. Lust, lying, rage, whatever it is. But beneath that decision, and that can happen so fast, people will think, I didn't even decide. They'll miss it. They'll miss that moment. But beneath that decision is that strong desire that it's based on, to be respected, to be wanted, to avoid humiliation, to avoid rejection. But ever, even deeper lies that binary choice. God? Not God. How can we make the right choice in the confusion of the moment? Because as I said, often these things happen so quickly we're not even aware of making a decision. In the confusion of the moment, how can I make the right choice? I'm going to give you a few suggestions. First, make the decision before the confusion of the moment. That is extremely important. Make it today, if you haven't done so already. And if you have, affirm it. God is and will be most important to me. God is more important than anything to me. If some option lies before me that will lower God in my regard, keep me from hearing his word, or decrease my desire to know him, I will choose against it. Make the decision before the moment of confusion. Next, be aware of the strong desires within you. They're not wrong. I think that's why I would take the word evil out of this verse, since the modifier isn't there and the word itself doesn't mean that. They're not wrong. The desires to be important and wanted, along with their opposites, to, to avoid feeling unimportant, unwanted, God gave us those. But they've been twisted. The monster sin has injured us more deeply than any of us realize. Every immediate temptation relies on these strong desires for its power. Acknowledge the desire, but choose to fulfill it God's way. I recognize the desire, God, but I'm not going outside of your will to, f to fill it, to fulfill it. When you stand before some trial or temptation, and in Greek there's just one word, that word means test or trial or temptation, just one word. 
And every trial can become a temptation to deal with your strong desires as if God isn't there. See, that binary choice, God, not God. The temptation will always be toward not God. When you stand before that trial, get your bearings. If you fixate on the enticement, whether you take it or not, you're already in trouble. So get your bearings. Where does this lead? Some people are trying to kill all the snakes on the path when they need to be getting on a different path. Where does this path lead? Where is God? How can I persevere in trusting him in this test, this temptation? And then expect God's help. When you come into a trial, expect God's help. Look for it. It's on its way. He will give it because as we saw before, verse 5, he's the giving God from whom good gifts, this is verse 16, are coming. It's a present tense participle, which means even now they're coming down from him because he's a God who never changes. He can help us know how to persevere in trusting him. Next, during the trial, you know, we can get so self-focused. Whatever the trial is, maybe the trial is an addiction. We can get so focused on ourselves in that trial. During the trial, look for the opportunity to give to others. In this way, you will be acting like the giving God, which will help you tremendously. One of the things the founders of AA discovered in the book of James, I was told last week, uh, was the original text for AA. Before they had the big book or any of that stuff, they used the book of James. One of the things they discovered is that the way to stay sober is to help others. To give your time, your thought, your prayer to other people, not just be fixated on yourself. That's true no matter what temptation you face. Be like the giving God and give. Another thing, when the trial comes, so the trial can come in the form of lots of forms, health crisis, job crisis, hostility from a boss, uh, marriage problems, whatever. When the trial comes, when you're standing where the trail forks, don't be passive. This is the time to choose and to act. Don't say, well, I know God has some reason for this. That's the wrong way to look at it. And it's dangerously close to saying what James tells us not to say in verse 13, God is tempting me. God allowed this. No, don't say God has some reason for this. Say rather, God's purpose for me stands even in this. His purpose for you is to make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. His purpose is to help other people become mature and complete through you, even in the midst of your own trial. His purpose is to give you the crown of life, so don't be passive. Don't just accept the trial and say, well, we all have our cross to bear. That's not what it means to bear the cross. This is not your cross to bear, but it is your opportunity to trust God and grow remarkably. Make his purpose your purpose and get active. And, and one last thing, and I close with this. If you've taken the wrong path, 
If you've taken the wrong path a thousand times, if you've been bit on that path by more snakes than you could ever count, if you start off on that path so habitually that you do it without even thinking, it's not too late to get off of that path. If you're on the wrong path right now, turn around and go the other direction. As soon as you turn around, you're going the right way. Now, I don't say it will be easy. Likely it'll be the hardest thing you've ever done. But you will have help. And you can do it. All right, let's bow our heads and pray. I'll give you a moment in case the Lord has spoken to you about anything during this message. I'll give you a moment to talk to him about it. bless you for choosing us not because of righteous things we've done but because of your mercy and your love thank you for upholding us more times than we can ever imagine thank you for what you're going to do for us in Jesus name amen I'm going to ask you to stand